Welcome to the big speech. This is still our fake speech segment. We got Ross, Mike, Matt, and Landon here. Our selector of the speech this evening is Ross. All right. Thanks for welcoming me, Landon. Before we jump in, I would just like to welcome everybody with a quick shout out. So we're here with Mike Pippen Schaefer. Love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Love every single movie. We got Landon Mary Free. Sure, sure. <laughs> and we got Matt Treebeard Schultz. What up, what up? I had to make up for being named Charles at last week after Charles Barkley, I assume. We've gone over this, Matt. Charles Schultz, the cartoonist you were named after. <laughs> Uh, uh, hey, Matt, despite not bringing headphones or a microphone to this, what did you bring to the show tonight that will be... Am I allowed to talk about this on the show? <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to hear it until after the fact. <laughs> well, I've got one of these, and for those of you who are not watching the live stream cast of the show, <laughs> one of these is a gorgeous diamond ring, a uh, three-stone diamond ring on 14-karat yellow gold with a white gold, like, center thingy underneath the stones. Oh, a center thingy. Oh, yeah, center thingies. They're all the rage these days. Uh, but, yeah, so I will, I will be proposing to my girl, Claire, this weekend. This, this weekend? weekend? Yeah, like in two days. Whoa. Whoa. What's happening? For for those of our listeners, um, you know, Matt, he's been on the prowl for a while. We've all we've all watched him grow up in, in many ways. We've seen him fail many ways. We've seen him borrow cars on dates. Um, <laughs> and this is this is a big step for him. So we're all we're all rooting for him. Really, Hope really she says yes. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that flattering intro. <laughs> Don't there. worry. If, she's, if she says no, we will just cut this out. <laughs> good. 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 So, uh, is there any theme of of engagement to tie back into our topic this evening? Any bridge? Well, I couldn't think of a more engaging story than Lord of the Rings. <laughs> All right, I'll Great take it off from here. <clears throat> All right, so I'm the speech picker tonight. This is Ross speaking. Um, so I went with a selection, um, one of Sam's speeches in Lord of the Rings. So for people that want specifics, it's the second movie, um, and it's a, a dialogue between Frodo and Sam. You guys, should I read it, or should we expect that the reader, the listeners have heard it? Read it. Go for it. Okay, so we start oh, – all right, so we start with a Frodo here, a quick line. I can't do this, Sam. Sam's response. I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. 
that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in, the, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, but only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo's response. What are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam replies that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. And that's your speech. Okay, so before we jump too much into the speech, I'll uh, just give you guys a quick blurb on why I picked it. So first things first, I've always loved The Lord of the Rings. I read the books in high school. I liked them. I watched the movies. I liked them. And then later on in college, I read the books again, and I read some a book about the books and just kind of got a little bit more into Tolkien and why he wrote the books and some of the symbolism, if you will, in the books. And the deeper in I went, the kind of the more the more I loved reading them. I think when I first looked at them, it was pretty – when I first started reading them in high school, it was pretty much just uh, – I liked the adventure, the epicness, the quest, the fighting. I mean, kind of what a lot of you know high school guys are probably drawn to. Kind of a superficial level, just like you'd like a lot of superhero movies. Um, but I think that, like I said, when I went in college, I just got a lot more into the depth of the Lord of the Rings. And what separates, I think, Lord of the Rings from a lot of just superhero movies is the fact that how much I think is Tolkien and how good of a writer he was and how much depth there's in the books and how much you can draw from the books about life. And they're not just it's a lot different than just watching the Avengers and two hours of explosions and then it's over. There's a lot more to it than that. So um, anyway, so once we started doing this fake speak segment, I really wanted to do something from uh, Lord of the Rings. Why this particular speech in a, a movie or books with probably lots of them. Uh, why another reason I really like the Lord of the Rings is who the heroes are. So if you look at the Avengers, it's right, it's Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man and this rich guy that can fly, or it's Captain America that got this, I don't even know, secret, something that made him really fast and strong and good-looking, or it's some other superhero that can do things that we just couldn't. So it's kind of, we're looking at these impossible figures that can't really be us. Where if you look at the Lord of the Rings, I think, again, my younger version of myself that just looked at him superficially Right, you got Aragorn who can fight with the sword, and Legolas who can do all these cool things with the bow and all these sweet things. But in reality, the, the heroes in the Lord of the Rings are the hobbits, the nobodies. They're small, they're boring, they can't do anything, they can't fight as well as the other ones. They're kind of like again the nobodies, and I think that that really speaks a lot to the the story is that the real heroes aren't these people that none of us could actually be. They're just the regular average Joe guys, just like us. So, so I have a question for Ross and everyone. Um, you know, so qualifier here, I have, if I've seen the Lord of the Rings films, I don't remember enough of them to like, remember every single thing about them, but I'm aware of, and I can appreciate the things that Ross is talking about here, where they are bringing home the pertinence of this idea of the hero being the one who endures through the challenges day after day. It's the small person, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, of course, it's going to come up at some point. So hopefully this is a good enough point here. Um, of course, Tolkien was strongly um, influenced by his Catholic faith, and there's different elements of the stories which 
borrow from Catholicism or Christianity in general here. Um, so coming back now to the question here, Rossi kind of made the comparison between the Lord of the Rings being something attractive to people, similar to Avengers in the sense that they're attractive, but different in the sense of how they are attractive. So, you know, as our culture becomes, uh, you know, not to be too dramatic here, but just simply becomes less Christian, is it surprising that at least 20 years ago when these still came out, that they are as attractive to people as they are? And does that say something about the legitimacy of the Christian story itself? What do, what do you guys think about that? I mean, I, I guess that Christian, is it that obvious? So, I mean, I think that's your question. I think somewhat answers Mike's question, ex- yeah. answers Mike's question a little bit. Tolkien was, again, he was a really good writer. So he wrote about kind of these, and I, I would argue kind of these basic universal, you know, realities or truths about just the human experience and put them in a fictional story. But they're, the fact that they're these kind of universal things, it's kind of these things that everyone shares or has in common, I think everyone's going to identify with it at least in a little bit of a way. And then to kind of be a little bit more maybe direct answer is the way Tolkien wrote in contrast to, say, C.S. Lewis, who was a good friend of his. So if someone reads the Chronicles of Narnia, which is Lewis's kind of masterpiece of fiction, it's very obvious. So, right, in the Chronicles of Narnia, you have Aslan. This lion is in, is very clearly the Jesus figure. And you can kind of go on and on and on, and it's very – it's like it's more of a direct analogy where Tolkien didn't write that way. He wrote in a more subtle kind of – I guess I would kind of say through the layers way. Um, so it's not quite as easily perceived on the surface, which is why I think if you just watch it once without giving it too much thought, yep, it's an entertaining action movie just like the Avengers. But if you're really willing to you know, give it the time or the discussion or the thought, you really see how much is kind of below the surface. I'd really wish that we had like some – an atheist or someone on the show – just just to learn an atheist who loves Lord of the Rings or something and just simply learn like and I'm sure that they're aware. I mean, people, atheists aren't stupid or anything. They're culturally aware, like just with the knowledge, having the knowledge that these stories are influenced significantly by different elements, uh, very specific elements of Catholicism and or Christianity in general. Like, how how do you respond to that? Like, just what what are kind of your immediate thoughts? Is it I don't care, whatever, or like yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I can hardly kind of conjecture what what they might say there. I I might suggest that that the atheist would respond by. Um, especially just given, so like, just certainly J.R. Tolkien has this background as a Christian, um, but he also has a background as a philologist and someone who's uh, deeply um, influenced by like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, just mythology in general, I suppose. Um, so. I would say that the atheists would probably see this as another myth amongst – as one myth amongst many others, including Christianity. You know what I mean? So they kind of see Christianity as just 
basically, you know, Christianity, um, Norse mythology, Greek mythology, you know, African mythology, you know, whatever it is. Um, I, I kind of see, um, I would imagine they'd kind of see this all in the same light and that like there are universal human truths. I don't, I don't know. I would really have a hard time, uh, finding someone who would disagree with that, you know, that there aren't, that there isn't something universal. Um, but yeah, yeah. That, I guess is that's how they would say. That, that, that's an interesting, so I'm kind of like thinking things through as you kind of talk through some good points there. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's a pretty legitimate argument for what just any average thinking atheist might say. Um, Let's make a group reminder to ourselves here to look at a few of the very specific Catholic or Christian allusions in the book. Um, but to kind of finish out my thought here, you know, when we say myth, obviously they vary tremendously. I mean, just a few that come to the top of my mind. You have the one of um, who who is the the Roman God, she, she goes to like hell or something. And that's what winter is, right? Aphrodite. Aphrodite. You have, um, or Persephone. I can't remember one of the two. Yeah. You have, I don't know who else, <laughs> right? You have all these myths. And the point is they vary of course, somewhat, but of course they are similar, right? Because, they are similar in the sense that there's heroes, there's love, there's true love, there's not true love, there's lust, there's all these different common strands that kind of converge in somewhat specific ways on, you know, what it means to be a good human, right? And the point is, it's just an interesting idea, and I'm sort of reminded of um, C.S. Lewis, uh, what he wrote in the book Mere Christianity, where he says something to the effect of God gave all of these non-Christian cultures good dreams, quote unquote, uh, to describe this idea that these different elements of Christianity were sort of like trained in um, non-Christian cultures and all the different generations and eons, well, not eons, but generations before Christ came. Uh, and so that, you know, we might sort of better understand who Christ is and uh, what his message is so that it has kind of better context, if you will. Um, so that was the big line I just gave here. But again, I said that so we're sort of talking in generalities here, but can anyone share like any of the specific Catholic or Christian elements of the stories which uh, Tolkien sort of, um, you know, uh, crafted in order to bring home certain themes or ideas? Yeah, I guess I can jump in quick with a couple things. I mean, but so kind of an interesting one that I, uh, you have Gandalf and you have Frodo, three of the most recognizable characters. So, Kind of us to, to speak to my point earlier about how it's not obvious. So as as in comparison to a chronicle, Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan is clearly the symbol for Christ or God, Tolkien's a little bit more in, in depth than that. So um, in Christian theology, you have uh, Christ as priest, prophet, and king. So if you look at these three of the main heroes of the book, they each represent one aspect of that. So you have Aragorn is the is the heir to the throne. Um, and he kind of has to 
um, the, the line of kings has been lost and similar to after David before Christ, right? The line is kind of lost. And then we have Aragorn emerge as the king and you have Gandalf, who's a person literally sent from, I mean, you could say God or in, in this, in the film it, or in the books, it's like, I mean, as it, again, it's not directly just, it doesn't say God, but it's sent to, um, kind of teach people and he's the prophet figure he's even this old guy with the beard and a staff right and then you have and and especially a reading you know think about the old testament and christianity you have the idea of the priest who offers sacrifices for the people and that's what frodo is doing he's offering the sacrifice and like christ it, it until the very end it seems as he's literally offering himself um as so again it's not you would not watch that movie and think oh my gosh those, that's the priest prophet and king from that, you know, the three, three of these um, kind of identities that Christ may have in Christian theology, but that influenced those characters and their roles in the story. Um, so, again, you it's not obvious. It doesn't jump out and scream at you like maybe another book, uh, other writers might. But I guess that's one just one example of something that has, you know, has an influence in the books from his uh, his background, religious background. Something yeah. else. Or I was gonna, something else that that I've I've heard is a very Christian theme is just the nature of the ring itself. So like I've heard people kind of say the ring is is almost analogous to sin, in that um, it kind of possesses you, it weighs you down, it changes who you are fundamentally, right? So you have Gollum who starts out as a hobbit of sorts, and because he's so possessed and taken by the ring, he ends up this kind of unrecognizable creature who's who's pretty um, uh, despicable, I suppose. Um, and because of the ring makes you invisible, so it can, well, there's I think there's some interesting symbolism there, you know, in terms of like shame and sin and things like that. Um, and then you basically Frodo, so one of the Christ figures who's making the sacrifice, right? So he the, his whole mission is to destroy the ring um, and kind of carry the burden of sin or the ring um, back where it came from and, and destroy it permanently. So that's another kind of very Christian theme of, of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun and it's interesting to hear you guys talk through each of these roles. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, one of the classes I taught this year. And I wish I were more keenly aware of uh, of these Christ being represented in these three distinct ways in Frodo and Gandalf and Aragorn, Aragon, Aragorn. And uh, because wait, 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 you taught a class <laughs> about Lord of the Rings and you didn't know these three things? Uh, I mean, I've heard, no, 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 I did not, <laughs> Jibo does not offer classes on Lord of the Rings. No, what I was doing, I was teaching something about priest, prophet, king, okay, and how we're all baptized, uh, right, those right. three, okay, and so I wish I'd known, because the point is, you know, we can hear, imagine if you're just reading the catechism, right, you hear that you're baptized, priest, prophet, king. It can come off very abstract, right, and it can come off, like, irrelevant or et cetera, et cetera. But, of course, when you hear these stories, you know, you see the characters acting in very human, complex ways, and it helps you see more clearly, you know, how each of those three roles, priest, prophet, king, are important elements uh, to kind of have in a society I mean that, or a community, right, um, at one point or another, at least. So just something 
interesting to think about. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. And I, um, I actually had one other thing, I guess, but before I get too much into this speech, I guess I give you a quick blurb on why I chose it. But let's, Matt, can you give us, or somebody, I guess, whoever knows, um, Matt seems to be more of another Lord of the Rings fan, a little, like, just explain a little bit about Tolkien's back, not just the, okay, we know he had this religious symbols, but his life and why he, like, how he got to this point. I think Mike knows a little bit more about his life. Let's let's turn it over to Mike. I, I wasn't gonna uh, you know whatever, but yeah, I, I did in fact do do some research on Tolkien here. Um, yeah, writer, poet, soldier, Oxford professor, and philologist. Uh, that's a big word. That which um, which one do you think is coolest of that list? I mean, of course, philologist. I mean, until. <laughs> Until um, uh, Treebeard uh, used that word earlier in the podcast, you know, many people, of course, have never heard the word philologist. But uh, in addition to being kind of a teacher or student of um, language as a philologist, you're also a student uh, and teacher of symbols. Okay, so that's what philologist means. Boy, if you read the Wikipedia page on Tolkien, you're going to be sitting there for a couple of hours, which is exactly what I did because I'm all about this podcast. Um, so, but here's here's the abbreviated version uh, for the sake of brevity here. Um, did not grow up Catholic. His parents uh, brought him up Baptist here. Um, his mom is the one who converted to Catholicism. And this was a big event in his life in many ways because her conversion um, resulted in her being her family being cut off financially um, because, you know, there, there's a lot of anti-Catholicism back in the day. Um, Tolkien recalled his mother this, this way. Is this is this England? Yeah, we're in England here. We're in England. We're in England. Um his mother died of type 1 diabetes at age 24, which was fairly common back then because that was just the age you tend to die uh, for untreated diabetes. Um, Tolkien says, My own dear mother was a martyr indeed, and it is not to everybody that God grants too easy a way to his great gifts as he did to Hillary and myself, giving us a mother who killed herself with labor and trouble to ensure us keeping the faith. All right, so I believe I said too easy, but this should have been so easy. Um, regardless, you know, Tolkien certainly admired his mother in a very deep and sincere and moving way. Um, of course, his mother uh, ultimately left his uh, him and his brother to be, ra- be raised by a gentleman named Father Francis Morgan. Um, great upbringing by him, apparently learning uh, the values of charity and forgiveness uh, is what Tolkien remarked. Um he had a particular summer vacation in Switzerland in 1911. Kind of imagine a really long backpacking trip. But it's this particular trip that kind of provided the inspiration for the formats of Lord of the Rings. Um, romance in his life, sort of similar to the story of C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidson. Uh, and the fact that just this really striking um, marriage that people talked about in very positive and real ways. Uh, a few fun facts for this. Uh, he met his future wife at age 16, Edith. Um, 
had great fun with her, you know, chasing her around the merry-go-rounds, this and that. Uh, but his guardian, Father Francis, did not he didn't exactly say no to Edith, but he thought that Tolkien was way too young. Um, and he wasn't exactly too keen on the fact that she was Protestant. All right. So um, he said, you can date Edith or court Edith again when you're 21. That's five years Tolkien had to wait. And he waited those five years. They were both, well, he turned 21. He found Edith. Edith was engaged. He convinced her to break off the engagement. The rest is history. Um, <laughs> fun fact, enlisted as a code breaker for Britain in World War II because of his uh, profound language, uh, training in language. Um, he did some training, ultimately wasn't required. Um, I'm going to finish off my bit here um, on what is inscribed on him and Edith's tombstone. Does anyone know what is inscribed on their tombstone first? The names Luthien and Baron. Um, these are two names from Middle Earth. Uh, one of the portions of the legendarium of Tolkien, just this broad, you know, we use the term Marvel Universe for all of these stories that take place within the, you know, the Marvel Universe. Characters are all acting in the same space. The legendarium is the academic term for the space of Lord of the Rings and all the adjoining stories. So the creation myth of the Lord of the Rings legendarium involves this woman, Luthien who was the most beautiful of all the children of Ilúvatar. Um, she forsook her immortality for the love of the mortal warrior, Baron. Okay, so that's just kind of a brief review of the love life of Tolkien, the faith life of Tolkien, and um, just, just some events that uh, ended up shaping him in his life. Yeah, I'm, um, I got something to kind of bounce off of that that I, I feel like flows well with I didn't mention it earlier, but probably the biggest reason why I think I chose the speech um, to tie it in my own life a little bit. So is this, now that we know part, the, is this what I think you're going to say? Uh, like the best part of how like these stories got served up. I don't think so. All right. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> we'll keep going. It's better. It's better than that. So Mike alluded several things. So Tolkien was a pretty interesting guy, right? So you've, he's a very intelligent guy. He's an Oxford professor. He's clearly an academic, wrote lots of books, intelligent. He has this strong faith life. Um, so that's a very, I mean, he's a religious man, kind of an interesting man. But then he also has these really interesting life experiences. He fights in World War One, something that none of us could probably actually relate to. He trained as a codebreaker for World War II um, and had to live through all of that. So he's kind of got this – and then you throw on, the, on top of all that, now he has this beautiful love story where he had to wait for this woman, and then there's this kind of struggle to get her back, and uh, then they, they have this great marriage, and he just – you know, he, this tombstone, this beautiful poetic thing he's written. So overall point, just a really kind of romantic life. Soldier, fought in World War One, great love life, got the girl. Really smart guy, got to teach at one of the most prestigious colleges in the world. So – Long story short, he's just a really interesting, cool, like, inter a cool guy. And yet, at the same time, he lives, like, he kind of chose to live in, I guess, I don't want to say it's a too negative a way, but, you know, boring old England, you know, just kind of stayed home, didn't go anywhere and move away, sipping tea, right, kind of stereotype there, we'll, we'll let it go. But, um, 
So he kind of has this little bit of a combination of romance, romantic life, and yet still very ordinary. And that's why I think is so cool about Lord of the Rings is this high epic novel with these stories and these heroes and all these things that we look at as these beautiful things. And yet the heroes are the hobbits. And what is interesting is Sam giving this speech. He's definitely looking to hope. Right. He's looking to hope. He's creating a very hopeful look to the future in the midst of trying time. And yet all Sam wanted to do was go back to the Shire, the most simple, ordinary, domestic place in Middle Earth. That's what he wanted the most. Um, And I think that's to tie it into my life a little bit for people that are listeners that don't know me. So married, three kids. Um, So, right, 10 years ago, I'm in college. And just like most people look into the future, dreaming, romance, what am I going to do? I'm going to climb these mountains. I'm going to get these jobs. I'm going to do these great things. And yet right now, I'm kind of not that I didn't picture my life this way or that I'm unhappy, but I'm living a very ordinary domestic life. So kind of how to tie those two things together I think is something that Tolkien did beautifully. And I would imagine, I mean, right, the whole idea of, not that I'm in a, I mean, that what I described I think is different than like a midlife crisis, I guess. But just this idea of, you know, if we, we kind of have these big dreams, but maybe that's not what's really going to satisfy us. Maybe it's these kind of these ordinary things. And I think that Tolkien had a kind of a mastery of just combining the two. Um, so when Sam gives this speech, I love the part in this is the movie version that we gave because it's this it's cool and there's this music and it's awesome. But in the book, he kind of mentions at one point just how these characters in the great stories, he used to think they went out looking for this danger, this adventure, these quests. But in reality, you kind of just find yourself there and you didn't necessarily plan it. You're just you're here. And this is what you got to just what you're, you have to work with. And do you if it's not this whatever you pictured it or want it to be like it wasn't for Frodo and Sam at this point, you know, do you lay down and quit or do you do what Sam does? And you say, no, like we're going to, we were going to keep going. Um, and I, I just find it, I kind of relate to that in a way, just this kind of, uh, play between epic romance with, yeah, kind of just ordinary. I didn't choose this, but this is life and this is what I'm going to live. Um, so I don't know if, I don't know if that stuck, if anybody else maybe didn't have the same takeaways, but that's something that I really liked about, I feel like the movies as a whole, but I think this speech to me kind of, it stuck out. Yeah. I think another way to sort of succinctly describe the idea that you're, you're presenting here is, um, you know, epicness will find you if you do your duty. Um, I'm reminded of a film, great film that y'all should definitely watch um, called The Hidden Life. Has anyone seen that? It's out on Red Bucks right now. Um, and the story of the film is, is certainly very, very similar to what Ross was just saying and the general concept that Sam puts forward here. And I'm not giving anything away by describing this, but uh, it's a true story. It takes place in Austria uh, during or just before World War II. And there's a guy who is, um, you know, all of his townspeople, his neighbors are pledge allegiance to the Nazis um, because they're all conscripted and they have to pledge allegiance to the Nazis. And this drama plays out through the film is that is he going to be drafted? You know, is his um, is he going to be forced to pledge allegiance to Hitler? Right. Um, and to kind of put a fine point on it to kind of draw these ideas together is that he was 
just like anyone else, sort of hoping, well, maybe it's going to be a moot point, right? Maybe the the Nazis are not going to come to draft me, and it will it will be irrelevant, right? I can just sort of do my duty, and things will be well. Um, but of course, things don't work out that way, and the Nazis do come, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but the movie is called The Hidden Life because of this quote by T.S. Eliot, which is presented at the end of the film, where something like half of the world's forces for good consist of not great dramatic forces, but by the people who lie in unvisited graves or something like that. Um, And again, it just connects with this idea here that if we focus, if we try to be more like Frodo and Sam or this guy from Within Life or all these other heroes we've talked about by doing our duty, then then the epicness will sort of find us. And it will be more of an authentic, real expression of heroism rather than kind of um, trying to pick a fight, if, if that distinction sort of makes sense. Yeah, I really like that. And actually, it's it's interesting in this time because, like, I don't know, just a, an interesting experience I had. So, like, I work as a physical therapist uh, with the coronavirus. Our clinic was closing. Well, not closing, but ba- slowing down dramatically. And um, they told us that a lot of us were going to get reassigned to these new positions, right? So I kind of had this, like, initially I had this really glorious sort of view about what that might be. You know, I'm going to be, you know, in a tent in the pouring rain, you know, taking nasal swabs on like this huge line of cars lined up to like, you know, if then people are just sick all over the place. And those and, nasal swabs sound glorious. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, but like this really dramatic scenario, right? You know, so like the world's about to end, everyone's sick and I'm just here trying to like, do whatever I can, you know, and, and like what it turned out to be was like, nope, I just ended up being like basically working as a CNA, like a nurse assistant in a hospital and wiping butts and taking people to and from the bathroom and getting their, you know, getting them a glass of water and all this like really mundane stuff that like sounds awful, but like means the world to these people. You know what I mean? Like Dr. Schultz, why are you trying to perform surgery on that woman? (laughs) <laughs> exactly you know like it's yeah i mean it's it's the type of thing like dang i had this huge like epic vision about what would happen but at the same time like shoot like i don't know there's a lot of good that was done just in me um yeah being available and present to people when they needed it so so let me ask you this it sounds like you had a good outlook on it i feel like that's something i still struggle with a little bit but maybe struggled with a lot out of college a little bit, kind of adjusting to, you know, just a normal adult life. But I feel like that's something, I don't know, I think millennial, I kind of want to, I mean, we are millennials, I guess, but a lot of people I know seem to kind of be looking for something. Um, So whether that's the, the great job or, you know, it's kind of, it's popular right now to travel and have all these cool experiences. And it seems like not necessarily in a, like we kind of mentioned the Marvel movies, the Lord of the Rings, I mean, Star Wars, these kind of these fantasy type things. It's like it's always a battle and war and let's beat the bad guy. But I think if it comes to life, you could also, you know, you could put your name on whatever you whatever your mountain is that you want to climb, if that makes sense. But if like most people know, right, life doesn't you don't get to when you're 
you don't just get to pick exactly where you'll be in 10 years and 20. I mean, you can plan it and do your best, but things are going to happen and change and you have to be able to kind of go with the flow. So when, when the mountain's not what it, you thought it would be, you know, Schultz, that was a really, I guess, good example. I mean, have you guys, Landon, Mike, have you guys ever experienced something like that? For me, I feel like it was kind of getting married. And I mean, just like anybody who ever has been married will tell you, yeah, there's kind of a honeymoon phase and then that kind of gets over. And it's just, it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's great. I don't want to speak badly about it at all, but it's all of a sudden it's, it's regular, ordinary life. It's not, you know, the honeymoon anymore. And just how do you be happy there? Yeah, that you actually said the exact title of a book that I've read during our COVID lull here. Um, would highly recommend called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. Um, he is he is the conservative writer for the New York Times. So New York Times leans a, a little left of center, perhaps, and he provides the opposing view in that circle. Um but he's a pretty a pretty accomplished journalist, um, and the concept that he laid out and talked at length about was, yeah, most of our society and education system and careerism and success is defined as, you know, conquering the biggest mountain you can see in front of you. Uh, but so often you get to the top of that or halfway up it, and it's like, well, man, now I can see a lot of other mountains, and once I get to the top, well, if you look any different and um, you know, what, so the first one is usually more of an earthly material, uh, predefined sort of, um, obvious success. And then when people, uh, understand perhaps the second calling, the second mountain and, you know, reposition themselves, whether they find that right after college or at age 30 or at age 60, um, finding the thing that they can contribute and most of the, the number one defining aspect of it is serving others. Um, it's usually not glamorous. It's not that famous or you don't make a ton of money at it, but there is like this, you know, there, it's not happiness, but it's joy in knowing you've got a lot to, um, a lot to do, a lot to work for. You might not be, um, you know, on the lake for three days every weekend in the summer, um, but you are contributing and applying yourself in a way that you're not even worried about perhaps getting to the top of the second mountain. So um, really good book, highly recommend, and addresses some of those points you had uh, just discussed. Yeah, so I can't necessarily put my finger on any particular point in my life where I really um, got this idea, Ross. But I mean, I, I can still definitely identify with it and I can definitely sense a greater devotion to this idea since college as I gain appreciation and uh, just get better and better at realizing that um yeah, you know, you, well, here's here's something I was thinking about today while running or yesterday. Um, a line from Rocky. Sorry to throw Rocky back in here, but Rocky too. But Mick, he says to <laughs> I don't think I can do a impersonation, but he says to be a good fighter or to fight 40 minutes, 
you have to train for 40,000 minutes. And I think it's the exact same idea here, but expressed in a different way. Uh, that's to have 40 great minutes of your life um, where you rise to the occasion. You need 40,000 minutes of consistency in, in the small things there. So. Yeah, and that's why <clears throat> I read somewhere, I don't remember if this was Tolkien himself or someone commenting on The Lord of the Rings, but it talked about how Sam is really maybe the hero of the books in a lot of ways because he exemplifies this so well. You've got this ordinary guy. He's literally – his job was a gardener for someone else. He calls he, – you know, he says Master Frodo-like type. He's just – he's kind of the – in a way – not servant, but he's he's not he's not top of the food chain by any stretch of the imagination, um, and he's – He's a hobbit. He's small. He just sees this ordinary life. He gets nervous around the girl that he likes, and yet he's the one. You know, he goes with Frodo, and he has the un, he has the unglorious job, right? Frodo's the one that's carrying the ring, and yet Sam's the one that just won't give up and won't leave his side, even though he's not the one that's going to get the credit for it. And then in this moment, he's the one that you know says no, no, we have to, we have to keep going. And um, so I don't know, I just I think that that really to me that's kind of what I thought of just. Like this basic ordinary guy in a way saving the day um, just by, you know, like you, know, you said earlier, just doing his duty. That was what he was there to do. He was going to be with Frodo and he wasn't going to let anything stop him. So. So getting back to the, the speech, the text. Um, pretty simple and powerful words. My mind went a couple places during it. What what's going on here? What's the context like, especially like. We shouldn't be here full of darkness. How is the end result going to be happy? Um, like, what's the despair that they're in and what's so hard about getting out of it? Clearly from the guy who hasn't seen the movies. Glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, basically, I, I guess... To, general outline of the plot of the movie which i think is is warranted um frodo's uncle bilbo inherits or has this ring and gives it to frodo as he kind of disappears um it's a very mysterious thing um frodo doesn't really understand it eventually gandalf comes and kind of guides him and tells him the importance of the ring and and whatnot um, so this kind of meeting of a bunch of people, a bunch of really important, impressive people. So Aragorn, who's been mentioned already, is one of them. Um, a few of these elf people and and uh, crap. What's uh, what's Gimli? What's he again? That'd be a dwarf. A dwarf. That's right. The dwarfs. I was gonna say the trolls, but I knew that, I knew that wasn't right. So um, all these different, these kind of ancient peoples, if you want to call them that. Um, <clears throat> come together and they decide on a plan to basically destroy the ring so that um, this this evil can stop um, kind of growing and festering in the world of Middle-earth. Um, and their plan involves Frodo, of all people, to take the ring into this mountain and destroy it, right? So that's that's their journey, is to destroy this the ring of power um, that all of these evil people are... are are basically trying to murder everyone to to acquire, right? Um, so Sam uh, joins Frodo on this journey, and like Ross says, doesn't leave him, you know, doesn't leave him by his side, sticks with him. 
um, and they had just completed a particularly grueling part of their journey. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, part of the power of the ring is that it kind of possesses and weighs down the person carrying it, um, and it makes the person in possession of the ring kind of focused only on keeping the ring for themselves. Kind of like a Harry Potter horcrux. Maybe. I've never – I only got to book four, and that was – in like yeah. the fourth grade. All right. Yeah. Horcrux didn't come until book six. <clears throat> Bummer. Dang Horcruxes. <laughs> All right. But um, so in this particular scene, or right before Sam makes the speech, Frodo was getting weaker and weaker from carrying the ring. And he nearly gave himself up to these bad guys called the ring wraiths. There's this big like dragon looking thing, whatever. Um, or like a, Ghost-looking guy riding a dragon-looking thing. It's pretty intense. But he almost gives gives himself up to these ring wraiths. And Sam tackles him and keeps him from doing it. But because the ring of power has come over Frodo, he pulls a sword on Sam because it's part of the the effect of the ring, right? This jealousy, this kind of trying to possess things for themselves. Um, Eventually, Frodo comes to... And realizes Sam is looking out for him and not trying to steal the ring. Sam realizes that Frodo is nearing the end of his strength. And that's when he realizes he needs to do something, say something to uh, give his friend some hope um, as he was about to give himself up. Good summary. Got it. Yeah, so to kind of bring it all, I guess, to bring it all back together so now if matt good job it's hard to describe three really long movies in three minutes but you did good um so kind of a a commonly quoted line from the first movie um is gandalf talking to frodo and frodo says something the effect of i i'm gonna i don't have it in front of me but you know i i wish the ring had never come to me i wish none of this had happened so he's just kind of and it kind of hits he gets hit with a little bit of despair and a troubling time and Gandalf responds, I'm going to try to remember it off my top of my head, something the effect of uh, neither do all who live to see such times. Um, all we have to do is um, – but I, I forget the quote. All we have to do is choose how to live the time that's given to us, sort of. So Gandalf pretty much is saying like, yeah, you, you, it sucks. You're here. It's awful. But like that doesn't matter. What matters is what you choose to do with your time. So Sam really – lives up to this really well because he has an unglorious role he's just the sidekick he's not the hero and yet in a time when his master literally has turned on him and everything should say he needs to back off he does his duty to the highest degree and you know it ends up spoiler alert they destroy the ring and everything's happy um so kind of just thinking about that i think sam lives up to gandalf's wisdom really well so um again just like i feel like in my life with kids and diapers and that type i mean you brush their teeth you feed them and just kind of kind of in a similar like unglorious time just i feel like that was a good reminder for me to kind of raise it to the epicness of maybe what it is um just to kind of like matt's example of you know what he needs to do for his patients right now um so anyway that's why i picked that speech from a from a french uh a series that i really like very nice very nice are we, should we, are we, uh, are we to final thoughts if we went around the horn and did everyone's 
whatever it may be, you've got a note that uh, wasn't covered from a comment 20 minutes ago and call it there. One story I thought of, um, and this is this is an old guy I know named Lou who has Parkinson's disease, and it's um, yeah, it's advancing um, pretty rapidly. And at one point, um, we were having a conversation about what his long-term goals are. So I'm kind of helping him. Um, he's yeah, helping him outside of the clinic, kind of just um, is it you know not a formal patient, I suppose. Um, but just doing some physical therapy stuff, just trying to keep him as strong as I can. And I ask him, like, what his goal is. And eventually throughout this conversation, he said his goal was to stay strong enough to die at home. Which was like, I don't know, I, I guess that kind of reminded me of this speech in that, um, you know, there's a lot of darkness in his life, right? And, you know... Um, by rights, we shouldn't even be here. Something Sam says, like he didn't do anything to deserve Parkinson's. Um, you know, there's all this darkness, but like, there's this kind of su- this this subtle goal that's like really important to him, and that's that's like his new vocation, that's his new calling. And um, yeah, I don't know, just uh, kind of a cool story that, like a speech like this, like how how it might manifest itself in in another person's life. So here's to Lou. To Lou. It's it's uh you know there's no word. Ross in doesn't there. care about Lou. <laughs> <laughs> to Lou, I love you, Lou. <laughs> uh, my final thought, again, uh, reading it here, seeing it heard aloud, simple speech, not a ton of big words. Uh, I, it, you know, it's almost we've had a weird ten. 12, 14 days in America, and if it, it's almost like Uncle Sam coaching along the Frodo freedom of America, like, it's been some weird, dark times, like, a lot of ugly things from our past are popping up, um, and gosh, you spend too much time on Twitter reading the news or kind of the echo chamber of, of all the fighting going back and forth um this is in a couple interesting quotes and lines for the uh future sun shining and getting out of some clear areas of uh cultural politics and just some bad unfortunate things happening so i think it is uh perhaps too fitting for the last couple weeks and that hasn't been mentioned yet a cool line that i always liked from the batman movies the new the good ones with christian bale not the weird ones um he's fighting uh liam neeson uh raz al ghul i think is his name um <clears throat> and raz al ghul like the the bad guys literally are going to destroy gotham because it's so bad and sam's comment um because there's good in this world and it's worth fighting for um, Batman's comment is pretty much I forget what he says, pretty much Gotham's not beyond saving. And I just think that's kind of an interesting idea, like when people kind of in that movie, they've given up on Gotham Frodo's given up, maybe Meryl's given up, whoever's given up, like just the idea like there is still, it's still worth fighting for. So. Alright, that is uh, Lord of the Rings Big Speech See you next time